Turn in your Bible to the Gospel of John, chapter 9, and we'll be in verses 1 through to 7. So for those of you who haven't been with us for a while, we have been going through the Gospel of John since December. We kind of kicked this series off right around Christmas. Uh, And John is is a fascinating book of the Bible. If you've read any of the other Gospels, like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they look very different from John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tend to include the same stories, and maybe they're a little bit longer or a little bit shorter. There's a couple extra phrases added, but they they follow the same pattern. John is a little bit different. There's a whole lot of stuff in John that's not anywhere else in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And some people have taken that and said, see, um, you know, you, the, you can't trust any of this, right? Because they seem like different stories are being told. But actually, when you really look closely, John is kind of filling in the gaps, the, the things that have been left out by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I don't know if you've ever been with like a group of friends and somebody tells like a funny story or just a good story that gets a lot of reactions. And then you've got another friend who wants to cash in on like the social currency of telling the funny story and they retell the exact same story. Maybe I'm the only person who's experienced this, but like you say something funny, everybody laughs, and then somebody else is like, ooh, I can get people to laugh at me if I say it again, but louder. And uh, that, so I say that because that's not what John is interested in doing. He knows the story has been told, but John is writing last. John is writing after the story has been told by Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and so he's including different information, and he's assuming you know something about Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, If you were with us in high school ministry last, uh, I guess this past Sunday, uh, you're in luck because last week in college and career, I preached the exact same sermon. Uh, So it's kind of like you've been here two weeks in a row. Um, So you're almost sort of current with what's going on. But Jesus has begun his public ministry. He's, He's traveled to Jerusalem maybe twice. And as a public figure, like any public figure, whether it's a pop culture person or a politician, there's a lot of divided opinions about him. There's some people who love him. There's some people who hate him. There's some people who think he's possessed. There's some people who think he's God. There's all sorts of conversations happening. And Jesus has this confrontation in chapter eight with some of the Jewish leaders. And he makes this very clear claim that he's God. He says, before Abraham was, I am. Which is Jesus saying that I've existed forever. But it's also him taking the name of God and applying it to himself. And so they try to put Jesus to death for this, but he just sort of slips away. It's it's so bizarre. I would love to see like a camera of what happens because they pick up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. It's almost like while they're picking up rocks, Jesus just like ducks and runs. But he gets away from this and we come to our passage for the evening. It's probably happening as Jesus is leaving the temple Uh, as people are trying to put him to death. And we're told in chapter nine, verse one, as he passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not this man. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and he made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. And so he went and washed and he came back seeing. So this this passage happens as Jesus is leaving the temple and we're told that as he passed by, he sees this man who was blind from birth. 
Now, don't think that that is just some like accidental or, or inconsequential line to set up the story. Um, in Jerusalem, there would have been people who were blind and sick and lame and impoverished all throughout the city. They would have been so commonplace that they sort of faded into the background. So like I, I live in Seminole Heights, which I was talking with some people about it earlier. Uh, when I moved in, Seminole Heights was kind of like a sketchy neighborhood, um, which I miss desperately because it just felt more, I felt more alive when I felt in danger. Uh, and over the course of my first six months living there, there were noises that maybe freaked me out a little at first, like ambulances or gunshots or people screaming. Uh, and I'd hear it and I'd go, I don't know if I can go to sleep tonight. And then by the end of six months, it was gone. Like, and now I can't go to sleep without gunshots and ambulances. So I have like a white noise machine of all these sounds that hope no, I don't, that's a lie. Right, but you, you're continually exposed to something, you almost stop noticing it. Even if it's something haunting, jarring, frightening. This is what Jerusalem is like. It is full of people like this blind man who are sick for a variety of reasons. But Jesus sees him. There's an irony here, right? He can't see Jesus, but Jesus sees him. This person who has faded into the background of society is the very person that Jesus notices. Because Jesus is paying attention to the people at the margins. He's paying attention to the people who are suffering. He's paying attention to the people who are struggling. And I just have to wonder, like, if we're Christians in this room, are we seeing as Jesus sees, or are these people backgrounds to our life story that we don't pay much attention to? A couple weeks ago, I was talking with a friend, and he, uh, he was out at Mojo Records. If, if you're going to USF, you know about Mojo Records. Uh, if you're attending currently, if you're planning on going there, really cool record shop right by next to Chipotle, so it's perfect because you can eat until you're sick and then you can go buy uh, music, movies, and books. Um, and so he's at Mojo and this homeless man walked up to him and said, hey, can I talk to you for a second? And the, the initial reaction there was what it normally is. I'm sorry, I don't have any change. I, 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 can't, I can't help you. And the guy stopped him and he said, I don't want your money. Like I, you don't have to give me anything. I just want somebody to talk to me. Like, I just want somebody to look at me like a human being. Because these are the people that fade in the background. We don't see anymore. But Jesus sees him. But the reality here, something that the early church noticed in reading this passage, was that this is not just a statement about a man with a physical disability. Because again and again and again, the gospel is described as light. Jesus is described as the light of the world. And so, so this man is blind from birth. And although that's a physical ailment, it, it, it is a, almost a picture of the reality that's true of each of us. That in a spiritual sense, from birth, we are blind. That his poverty, his physical lack of sight, it's a metaphor for the human condition. That unless Jesus can open our eyes to the gospel, we'll never see it. And, and here's the thing that I, I am frustrated by in myself, is that I am surrounded by people who I can willingly acknowledge are spiritually blind. Friends of mine who I know don't believe the gospel, who I know are wrestling with, with all sorts of issues, but they fade into the background because I never once think to bring it up. Like I never once think to even have a conversation with them about the gospel because we're hanging out and I don't want to kill the vibes because, because 
it's going to be an awkward conversation. And yet they become, in a spiritual sense, what this man was in a physical sense in the city of Jerusalem. And yet, Jesus sees him before he can see Jesus. The disciples ask this question that sounds really mean. (laughs) They say, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? I don't know if the man heard him say this or if they took Jesus to the side. I don't know if they said this with contempt or with compassion. But the question is a little bit awkward. Um, Historically, there was a very strong undercurrent in Jerusalem and in Jewish thought in this time that linked physical suffering with sin. The idea was you must have done something to deserve this. You see this in the book of Job. Like if you've ever read Job, he loses everything. He gets really, really sick. And then his friends go, you did something. Like you're hiding it. Maybe you covered your tracks, but you must have embezzled money. You must have cheated on your wife. You must have done something because this doesn't happen to good people. And yet, and yet notice that this man has been blind from birth, Right? So, so how could he have done something? Well, fun, funny you should ask that because Jewish people asked this in Jesus's day and they'd come up with this idea that it's possible to maybe sin in the womb. And so maybe when you were in the womb, you did something to deserve whatever you were struggling with. And the disciples are sort of steeped in this, right? And they're like, he must, he must have done something really bad or his parents were awful and this is, this is the punishment. Now, that sounds ridiculous, and that sounds cruel, because it is ridiculous, and it is cruel. But when things in our life go wrong, we ask the same question, maybe with a different accent. We always ask, why is this happening to me? What did I do to deserve this? What was the cause of this pain? Whether it's that you didn't get into the college that you wanted to go to, whether it's the person you liked didn't like you back, whether it's the, the, the fact that a friendship that you thought would last a long time has fallen apart, whether it's the fact that you're in difficulty finding a job, we always ask, what's wrong? What did I do to cause this? As though we think that getting the answer to that will actually fix anything. But what's so interesting is that the Bible almost never answers that question. Like Job we can go back to that, demands an answer from God. Why is this happening? And God never tells him. We know why what happened to Job happened. Job never finds out. And I think the reality is that for most of us, when when things like this happen and we ask the question like why, the answer to the why is not going to make anything any better. So I've been pretty upfront about this. Um, I struggle massively with anxiety. And, and obsessive compulsive thoughts. And it's not all the time, but seasonally it kind of comes and goes. And it's, it's debilitating when it, it comes over me. Um, the last four days or so have been really, really hard for me. Um, it's, it's, it's leveled me. So much so that I, that I sat down with a friend of mine. Um, many of you know Josh Bales. He's a priest at the cathedral in St. Luke. He speaks here sometimes. Seniors, you'll get to meet him. He wears the funny collar and everything. And it's, it's pretty cool. Um, but he's got training in counseling. And so I, I was over in Orlando last, uh, yesterday for school and I sat down with him and, and I was like, hey man, I'm not trying to like bring your work into our coffee hangout session, but um, help me out here. What, where's this coming from? Like what's going on with me? Um, and and the, the first thing that he said to me was, 
Well, normally when people struggle with stuff like this, you can trace it back to a particular event that happened in your past. You can find the place where it came from. Can I tell you, that hasn't made me feel any better. Like knowing that I could figure out like what the trigger was doesn't fix anything. But then what he said is, ultimately, you're not alone. There's a lot of people who wrestle with this. God's going to work through it. There's a purpose for it. Those two things made me feel a whole lot better. The, the reason why, the where it came from, makes no difference in the midst of actual pain. But knowing the end towards which it's going, which it's going that makes all the difference. And so when the disciples asked Jesus, why did this happen? Jesus says, well, it didn't happen because he or his parents sinned. Neither of them sinned. It didn't come from that. But Jesus doesn't then say, it did happen because of a genetic abnormality, or it did happen because of an early childhood illness. He he doesn't offer an explanation. He doesn't say where it came from, but he says where it's going. He says, this happened that the works of God might be displayed. Philosophers use a, a term sometimes called teleology. You don't have to write that down. You don't have to remember it. Um, but it's, it's a way of describing the end towards which something is purposed, um, the goal of a particular object. So that sounds complicated. Let me make it easy. The teleological end for a hammer is pushing nails into wood, right? The purpose of a hammer is to do that. Uh, the, the teleological end for a car is to break down and drain your bank account, right? Like that is the end for which these things exist, um, and, and here's, here's the reality. Knowing the origin of something makes very little difference for how you use it. But knowing the end for something makes all the difference in the world. So if somebody hands me a hammer and goes, and I, let's, assume, let's assume I've never seen a hammer before, right? This was made in Wisconsin. That's where it came from. Cool. And I get, somebody hands me a car and goes, Came from Detroit. What's left of Detroit? <laughs> it does nothing, right? But if somebody says the purpose of this thing is to drive nails into the wood, that affects how I'll use it. That shows me what to do with it. That shows me how to manage it. Uh, there's a, a great phrase from um, the Westminster Catechism. Uh, which is, it's a series of questions and answers that outlines the Christian faith. And it asks this question, what is the chief end of man? What is the purpose of human beings? What is the teleological end for us? And the answer it gives is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And this is what Jesus is getting at. They say, where did this come from? And Jesus says, it doesn't matter where it came from, but I'll tell you where it's going. It's so that it will glorify God. Now, That is true of every single event in our lives, good and bad. That is the end towards which it's meant to move. So when it's good, like when you've gotten into the school that you want to go to, when you've finally graduated high school, when you you finally uh, stepped into a job that you're excited about, the purpose of that is to glorify God. And so the question you need to ask is, how do I glorify God in the midst of this good thing? But it's true in the bad, too. When, when scholarships are lost, guilty. I've got student loans because I didn't do a good job of keeping my grades up and I lost all my scholarships. 
When things like that happen, when, when relationships don't work, when friendships fall apart, when there's sickness, when there's disappointment, the goal is still to glorify God. That's the end. It's all of what we do. And keeping that in mind changes how we act in the middle of it. Jesus says, this isn't the result of sin, but here's where it's going, that the works of God might be displayed. And then we're told in verse six, having said these things, he spits on the ground, he makes mud with saliva, and then he rubs it on the man's eyes. I don't know if you heard about this. Um, There was a, a movie recently that came out. It had Joaquin Phoenix in it, and it had other people in it. (laughs) <laughs> whose names I don't remember. Um, I think it's, it's the story of Mary Magdalene. But Joaquin Phoenix plays Jesus, which is crazy to me because I've seen Joaquin Phoenix in a lot of movies and Jesus was never what I pegged him as looking like. And I, was re- I haven't watched the movie. I don't know if it's any good or not. This is not me saying anything about it other than that I read an interview with him. And they were asking, what was the most difficult thing about playing Jesus? Was there anything you struggled with? Apparently, this scene was in the original script for the movie, where Jesus spits in the mud and rubs it on the lady's eyes. And Joaquin Phoenix said, that's gross, and I'm not doing it. I don't know if they actually wanted him to like spit for authenticity, but, but he said, I, I read that, and I said, that's disgusting. Who does something like that? What an awful first experience for somebody who's been blind and can see now, and he refused to do it. I wish he'd maybe done some research. Because Jesus is not just practicing some like gross form of ancient medicine. There's a distinct reason why he does this. Because in the beginning, when God makes man, he reaches down into the soil of the earth and he forms human beings. So this man, as a result of sin, is lacking something. So once again, the creator stoops down into the earth, fashions what is missing. This is Jesus stepping into the role of God. This is not a gross magic trick. This is Jesus doing what God did in the beginning when he formed Adam out of the dust of the earth. This is Jesus reforming the eyes of this man who had lost them. So Jesus tells him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam. He went and he washed and he came back seeing. Notice though, here at the end, or rather in the middle in verse four, when Jesus explains everything that's happening, he says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming. No one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, there's a sense in which this sort of fits into John's gospel because Jesus is very clear that there is, there is a limited timeline for his ministry that he has a specific thing to do and that time is running out. If you notice sort of the, the logo for our series, our friend Susanna McCulley over in Scotland made it for us and it's this candle that's burnt down because the time is, is running out. And so Jesus in one sense is saying, I have to do this stuff now while I'm here because this is how the glory of God will be revealed. But if you read that too literally, because Jesus is talking to the disciples, he says, we have to do the works of him who sent me while it's day, night is coming. Then you can come to this conclusion, well, night has come, Jesus isn't here, so I guess we don't do good things anymore. Right? You, can, you can press that overly literally, which gets to all the passages we read in our service. Uh, the passages about the eyes of the blind being opened and passages about being the body of Christ. Because the reality is that Jesus is not physically in his incarnate form 
here. And yet, in the church, Jesus is still present. Jesus says here, I am the light of the world. But then Jesus tells the disciples, you are the light of the world. There's a, a song that my friend Corey sent me. Um, it came out of a, a worship collective in New York. And, and it, was, it was this group that got together to write songs about faith and work, which sounds kind of like a strange topic. But when you get into the workforce and you're not like a missionary or a pastor, you, you sometimes wrestle with this question of how does my job as a teacher or as a biologist or as a, as a mechanic, how does this happen to what God's doing? And so they wrote this song that I thought was so interesting. Um, the song begins like this. It says, Christ has no body here but yours. No hands, no feet on earth, but yours. Yours are the eyes with which he sees. Yours are the hands with which he blesses the world. And I, I think we lose sight of this sometimes. That, that Paul, again and again, he refers to us as the body of Christ. The idea being that the primary way that Jesus works physically in the world is through his people. And so it doesn't do for us to say, well, Jesus is gone, therefore we don't need to worry about these people anymore. Because Jesus has given us the task of now being his hands and feet. Which means that like Jesus, we look for those who are overlooked. We look for those who are spiritually blind. We look for those who have not yet seen the light of the gospel. We preach the gospel and we proclaim the good news. We mourn with those who mourn, and we comfort those who are in need of being comforted. Because night is coming when no one can work. And yet here and now, we have this opportunity as Christians to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Be what Jesus called us to be. He's the light of the world. Word, uh, Lord, we pray that you would, you would work in our hearts, God, that you would take everything we've heard and you would impress it upon us. God, where we have overlooked people, Lord, we ask that you would give us eyes to see. Where we have been blind to those who are hurting, would you open our eyes? Uh, God, for our friends who don't yet know the gospel, give us clarity to speak. God, where we question trying circumstances where we ask why, would you instead put in our hearts the question, what for? Where's this going and how do I glorify you in the midst of it? God, I pray for everybody in this room. You would use your word to make us more like Jesus so that we can be his body. We ask all of that in Jesus' name, amen.